and welcome to the To Mom podcast. My name is Valerie Propsfeld. Please join me as we encourage mothers to live their verb while also practicing self-grace. The goal of this podcast is to promote love as an action and live life more authentically. Just think about it. In five generations from now, you will have approximately 30 descendants and the number keeps getting larger and larger. We have more power as moms than we realize. Motherhood, in my opinion, is the most important job in the world. Hey, everybody. I am here with my guest today, Rena Delanerol. Rena is a maternal mental health therapist and a mother of two young children. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor with Counseling Works and also is a certified rehabilitation therapist. Rena provides holistic care that emphasizes each person's uniqueness. She provides strength-based and solution-focused therapy. I am so excited to have her as a guest today on the podcast and offer a view from the therapist's perspective of maternal mental health. Thank you so much for being with me today, Rena. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, absolutely. So Rena, let me first say thank you for helping us moms. We need support and I really appreciate everything you do. How did you decide to become a therapist and what do you enjoy working with your clients? And um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a bit of an unconventional road to becoming a therapist. Um, I have a bachelor's in archaeology. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I started in that field and still have a passion for, for archaeology. Um, after college, I uh, worked for many years at an equine therapy clinic, um, which is my other passion is horses. Um, and there I was doing more of the like horse aspect, um, training them and leading them. And, and I got really interested in working with the participants that were there. And so I decided to get a master's in therapy. Um, and so my, my MA is in rehabilitation therapy. Um, and then I came back and worked at the equine therapy clinic some more as a clinician and then moved to private practice, which then switched to maternal mental health. So wow. A wild ride. Oh my gosh. I love that. And that's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I bring a lot of those aspects into counseling. Um, it may not seem like it, but there's a lot, especially with maternal mental health, that pulls from anthropology and understanding culture and understanding the importance of sort of valuing culture and human variety. So I do pull a lot from that when I'm working with clients. Um, the horses, not so much, but <laughs> but um, certainly the anthropology, archaeology piece. Um and to your to your other question, I really I enjoy um, being a support system for clients as they're navigating this new role or trying to navigate the start of a new role as if they're dealing with fertility infertility and um, really seeing the change in them as they do the work and become the people they want to become and overcome the issues that they're they're dealing with and really feeling like I can add to um, their growth and development. That's amazing. I really, I, you know, and I'm also really fascinated at archaeology as well. Like, I think that's such an interesting topic. And to a lot of my inspiration of when I write and talk is about different cultures and like in particular history of like how mm -hmm. moms have kind of like what 
what we society has thought of the female figure in addition to the maternal figure and the family. What type of, yeah, what type of things do you like tie into therapy with cultures and, and all of that? I find that so fascinating. A lot of it is about how we view motherhood, how we have historically viewed motherhood um, culturally. And so a lot of times we talk in in our sessions about sort of the isolation of motherhood, even though in theory, it's this idea of collectivism and support. That's not always people's reality. Um, And we as you know evolutionarily we, we're built to be a community we're built to be um, group animals and that makes it very difficult when we live in an individualistic society because the expectation then is you're raising your child with your partner you're raising your child by yourself or your children and you know the old adage of it takes a village it really does because that supports the mother that supports the caregivers that are also providing for this child and raising the child and we have gotten away from that in many ways in our culture and in our society. And I I like to think that we're coming back to it, but the relevance in therapy is that it normalizes some of these feelings that like, we're not, we're not necessarily meant to be doing this by ourselves. We're not meant to be isolated and alone in our thoughts about how motherhood progresses or parenthood progresses. Absolutely. I think that's so important because Gosh, I remember when I had my first baby, I did feel so isolated. And to normalize that, as you're saying, like humans, moms, we're not meant to be alone. We're social creatures and trying to seek that out. And I remember like people would say to me and, you know, in, in, on social media and all that, how it takes a village and find your village. But I remember like not even knowing where to start and how to find my village. Like I um, lived in a different state at the time. And I, so I just didn't know what, what to even do. How would you recommend like for moms that are like, I just don't know how to even start finding a village. Right. Um, you know, it's a lot of it is, is going to be a, little, a, a bit of an internal checking in. Like what, mm-hmm. what makes me happy? What did I do before I had children or was were trying to have children? Um, a lot of times, and we can talk about this later too, but our identity gets lost or um, underneath everything else because motherhood is such a big role and such a new role. And for some people, it's a bodily role too. For others, it's it's mental, physical, it's it's all the things. And so what made you you before you were a mother? So I encourage people to check in with that. Like if you were somebody who enjoyed knitting, if you were somebody who enjoyed soccer, like find those people that are also moms or also parents. Um, If that becomes too difficult or that's not something that you want to access at this time, general mom groups on Facebook, mixed opinions sometimes. Uh, Sometimes they can be very supportive. Other times they can be very judgmental. Um, So a lot of it is finding what works for you, but also making sure that what works for you is really working for you. Is it just what you're being told to do? Like, oh, join the mom group, join Fit for Mom, join these things. And then you're in it and you're like, "Mm, this isn't me, but society is telling me I should be doing this. Mm. You can back out of it. You can do something else. You can find something else. Um, But a lot of what we are encouraged to do, whether it's social media or just kind of in, in life is, you know, find the thing and stick with it and, you know, fake it till you make it. And that doesn't have to be the case. So when you're looking for something to connect you with a community, um, try a couple different things. 
right? You might find a few people in one group and you may not stay in that group, but you may find really valuable friendships. Um, or you may find your, your tribe, your village, whatever you want to call it in whether it's a church group or a sports club or something that's strictly related to moms, like try them all. Hmm. I love that. That's such great advice. I mean, I think part of what I have thought about as a mom is that my identity, like you're saying, is removed. Like I gained a new name. And so I am mom. That's my name now, which is a beautiful name. But at the same time, I also am Valerie. So like when I'm filling out the birth certificate of my baby, I'm filling out their name, but I'm gaining this name as well. And society, like you're saying, has so many expectations. Our own selves have so many expectations. And like I studied for motherhood, like it was going to be an exam. And what, but thinking about what does Valerie want? And I love that about the values, like trying to, how, so what I do when I try to search for my values is like, I go to value lists. Like there's a bunch of them online. And I have noticed like for me, adventure, exploration, traveling, learning, those type of things fill my cup. Is that what you recommend for your clients to do? I mean, I know you're saying kind of just try it out, just try out different groups, see how you feel. I feel like internally, you know, if you feel content or not. Yeah, I think the other thing that becomes hard in parenthood, in motherhood, is that tolerance level. Because now you have a newborn or you have a toddler or you, you're raising multiple children and what you were able to, what was able to fill your cup before you were a mom may not do that right now. So you are the expert on yourself. And when you're engaging in some of these things and testing things out, um, it may not hit the way it used to. And that can be really disappointing. And, but you know, right. You have that feeling of like, Ooh, that, that didn't work. Um, and that's okay. There's no such thing as, as failure in this because you're always allowed to change things up. Um, and it can be sad. It can also be like, you don't necessarily want to let go of those things and that's okay. Um, but you're allowed to try new things. You're allowed to say like, oh, this thing that used to work for me doesn't anymore. Um, but I can, I can switch it up. I can explore different things. Yeah. I love that. Cause I, I know for me, I was, a I still am a musician. I play the flute which I did it so much prior to becoming a mom. Like that was my mm -hmm. life. Uh, I mean, I'm also a nurse practitioner, but like mm -hmm. I would do that all the time. But then once I became a mom that I was just thinking about that where it, just, it didn't fit my schedule like it used to. And it was sad, but at the same time, I'm like, I can still incorporate this just in different ways. I can encourage mm -hmm. music like with my children if they like it or like just play songs or show them like my recital recordings and then let me find some new hobby that we can do. Maybe we can, you know, like now that I know travel and nature and all of that and exploration, I like those things. So let's go on a hike. Let's, you know, look for things, go on a scavenger hunt. And, you know, it's how you're saying like it can be sad, but also like, I think that's the beautiful part of life of the seasons of change. Like we have different seasons of our lives and, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And I know I was standing in the diaper aisle recently where my third child is almost done. I mean, she's done essentially with diapers. It just kind of happened overnight where she's like, Oh, I'm good now, which I should be celebrating the fact that I don't have to deal with those things anymore. But mm -hmm. I cried in the diaper aisle and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like 
the baby stage. Yeah. So honoring that for me, it helps writing about like what I learned along the way and then Mm -hmm. embracing the next step of life. Right. Well, and embracing also can look like grief, right? Because that Mm -hmm. is a transition that we know in, you know, in theory, we have these children, we know they're going to be growing up and moving through the stages and that is wonderful, but it's also sad. Like we, we connect to that baby stage. Some of us, some of us don't, and that's okay too. And, you know, it's okay to sit in that grief. It's okay to be like, oh, it's my last, my last baby or last diapers. Um, And and honoring that and being honest with that helps you move forward. Um, we oftentimes will think like those negative or uncomfortable emotions, like ignore them, push them under the rug, or they're not there, or I need to be happy. I need to force myself to be in this moment of gratitude and happiness. And if that's not authentic, it's just going to make these other emotions just kind of sift under the surface and be uncomfortable. Um, but that's part of the transition. And that's one of the hardest things about parenthood. But also one of the most beautiful is watching your kids become more independent, become more realized human beings. But there's also sadness there, too. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do feel like those feelings, if you bury them, they'll just continue to simmer and they overflow Mm -hmm. in different ways and in different emotions and allowing yourself that time to grieve that. And that brings me to another point of like, for me, I sometimes feel like, I need to be perfect. Like I, it's this control of, mm-hmm. I have to be a perfect mom. And over time I've realized that I am far from a perfect mom. I'm an imperfect mom. And the only thing I really can control is how I love or using love as an action, being present in the moment, you know, doing those things that, um, as opposed to f- what I'm feeling, focusing on how mm-hmm. I can act, how I can love. Um, so can you talk with us about like, how do we have that kind of compassion for ourselves to say it's okay to not be perfect and have that self-love and, and be proud of ourselves as moms because we all are doing such a great job. Right. Uh, you know, so self-love as, as a theory is, is fantastic. Um, in practice, it's a little bit harder. Um, and, Although, you know, as a therapist, I want you to engage in self-love for you. Um, A lot of times it's actually easier to access when we're doing it for somebody else, ourselves. Um, So what I often tell tell moms or tell parents is, you know, when it's hard for you to check in with yourself, with the self-compassion, with the self-love, do it for your kids, right? Like when you're having moments that are difficult, what would you want your children to say to themselves when they're in that same position? And how would you want them to interact with the world when they're having a hard time or challenges? And a lot of times we just by nature are able to empathize and say, oh, I I don't want my kids to say those unkind things that maybe I'm saying to myself or Mm. give themselves a break, whereas like I push myself. Um, And that does two things. One is, you know, short term or in the moment, it's teaching your kids like the value of self-love, of self-compassion. Um, and showing them and modeling it for them so that they can bring that into their lives and as they mature, value those things. But then on the more long-term, subtle um, track, it also allows us as parents, as moms to say, like, by habit, the more I do this, the more it becomes ingrained in how I treat these sorts of situations and myself. Um, but we do, we do want to prioritize self-love, but it's hard. 
Um, so I often will say like, okay, so you had a really hard day today and you you kind of got down on yourself because maybe you lost your temper and, and yelled at your toddler. Um, if, you, if you were telling your child this, what would you want them to do? Would you want them to ignore their emotions? Would you want them to say like, I just, I suck as a parent, I'm a bad mom. Or would you want them to engage in some self-compassion? Like this was a hard day. I might've made a mistake. I might have lost my temper, but that's okay. That's not a reflection of me as a full, the full identity of, of mom. And a lot of times just in general, we can get very down on ourselves and that becomes our identity or that becomes a reflection of who we are, even though we know logically that's not the case. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, absolutely. I feel like that happens so much where it's, the process of it is so hard. And for me, I know I have a tendency to yell. Like that's just what I do. Um, and it's a reaction versus a response of if I can react and yell um, or I can respond kind of more with my human part of my brain, um, like that, you know, the prefrontal cortex area. How do I lengthen that space between like that, that kind of fight, fight or freeze part of my brain that's mm -hmm. creating this um, frustration or worry. How do I lengthen that space so I can respond more in the moment? And I love that idea of having your kids, like doing that with your kids, showing your kids, because those habits are helping build those kind of back roads in our brains as opposed to right. that highway over time. I... Right. I love that growth. It's like the growth mindset a little bit. Yes, where... Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this kind of moves into a different topic, but I think still very relevant mm -hmm. in that when we're working with kids, especially toddlers, right, that have lots of opinions and not very much emotional control, that oftentimes can trigger in us as adults feelings of, of sort of out of control, overwhelmed. And like you said, that space between like, in, in therapy, we talk about the wise mind, we have the emotional brain and the logical brain and logical brain, a lot of times for most people will come in and be like, you know, like, you shouldn't have yelled at them, you're older than them, you should be able to control your emotions. But emotional brains like that was crazy. Like, why are you throwing a temper tantrum right now? And honoring both of them and merging them as opposed to sort of separating them saying like, oh, emotional brain, you can only have time now or logical brain, you can only have the moment, the floor now. Um, how we merge those two um, a lot of times is is a big challenge, especially when you have somebody, you know, a toddler that you're looking at and you're like, why, why are you upset that it's raining? Like, I can't control that. I can't do anything about that. <laughs> but that goes to the challenge of when we're navigating parenthood and when we're navigating those moments of of um, stress and feeling overwhelmed, a lot of times our emotional regulation can be challenged. And if we don't emotionally regulate ourselves, our kids can't emotionally regulate. Um, and neurodevelopmentally, children, especially in the toddler, like we are not born to self or to emotional regulate, emotionally regulate. Um, we are born without that and we have to be taught that. So if we as parents, our role is to help navigate emotional regulation in our children, and we don't have that, it ain't gonna happen. Um, so a lot of times the conversation is stepping back for, for moms, for parents and saying, when you have a strong emotion, feel it. 
Like you're angry right now. You're frustrated. Validate that emotion. Emotions we don't control. We are allowed to feel all the things on the spectrum. It's the behaviors we control. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, we want to be able to model appropriate emotional regulation for our kids. But on the other, like that's not always the reality. Sometimes we do lose our temper. Sometimes we do yell. We do react, you know, in a snap judgment sort of way that we later on are like, wow, I wish I was more calm. But that's a teaching moment. That's a moment to repair with your child and say, I'm sorry, I lost my temper or I got upset. I didn't mean to yell at you. This is what happened. And that's twofold. Again, it models for your child that accountability is important in relationships, emotional accountability and behavioral accountability. Um, and also, it the more we do that, like you were talking about the neural pathways, the more we do that, the higher the likelihood is the next time we catch ourselves. Like, oh, I don't want to have to apologize again. Like, I don't want to have to be in that position of like, oh, I don't want to have to repair this. So I'm going to to remove myself or I'm going to create a situation where I emotionally regulate and then I co-regulate for my child. I love that. I love that. It's so, that is like, you're speaking everything that I think every day of like, okay, how do we uh, work? How do, how does mom work on these emotions? Mm-hmm. And but showing them that I'm not perfect either. And how do we co-regulate that? And like, mm-hmm. I know my, uh, she's almost eight now. She is so verbose and will tell me like, mom, I don't like your angry face. You said you were going to work on yelling and you're not. And sometimes I can like react. <laughs> and so it's like, well, you know, I and trying to reframe the conversation in my mind as well. And it took me a while to um, see it this way, but okay, I just didn't learn how to emotionally regulate when I was younger and growing up. So now I'm learning and we are learning together and we're going to do this and it's hard work, but Mm -hmm. that's where we grow those pathways in the hard work. Like when I'm training for like a half marathon, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to take these baby steps and eventually those miles will keep growing as addition to that emotional regulation um, yeah, I, I feel like for me, and this may not be for all moms, but for me, if I just hug or like that touch, that's mm-hmm. very helpful for me. Like, um, it's almost like, um, I know there's a term for it. Maybe it's like that mirror neuron thing, but like trying mm-hmm. to kind of take the emotions of the other person and calming right. down the heart rate, um, which I don't know, you know, like having a hug with those talks, but, uh, you know, talks with your kids, but also like maybe how can I do that if I'm also like wound up, like maybe mm-hmm. hugging myself or what would you recommend for that? So if you're somebody that likes and and values or responds well to that sort of uh, in, intensive uh, stimulation and grounding, um, absolutely. Like giving yourself a hug, a weighted blanket, um, having someone else give you a hug. And you can involve your kids in that depending on the situation. Like, you know, mom lost her temper. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have yelled at you. Um, Would you be open to giving me a hug and helping me breathe, help me calm? Because a lot of times we don't want to put that on our kids. We want to say like, we got to deal with our own stuff, which is true. But at the same time, you're you're teaching your kids. You're saying, like, you're allowed to ask for help. You're allowed to ask for the things you need. The other person doesn't have to give them, but you're allowed to ask. Um, so that's a really nice one. And those techniques are called grounding techniques. They keep us from kind of going out into the ether and, and feeling overwhelmed, and they bring us back into the present. And 
whatever that is for you. So you know that sort of uh, deep tissue stimulation probably is going to ground you. Other people, it's reorienting to time and space. So you know, my, one of my favorite grounding techniques is five things you see, four things you hear, three things you smell, two things you touch, one thing you taste. And that's not, it doesn't matter what the answers are. It matters, are you connecting with the moment in the present? And it's about bring yourself back in. Okay, like, what do I need to do right now? What am I feeling? Um, people that don't want to be touched, maybe they have to remove themselves. Maybe if their kids are in a safe place, you know, baby's in the crib, toddler is, you know, somewhere safe. I'm just going to step out for a second and take some deep breaths. Um, so part of it is doing the work internally for yourself. What do I need when I feel overwhelmed? Um, and a lot of times the tactile things are really important. So it could be something as simple as drinking a cold glass of water or eating a bite of a lemon, which sounds silly, but it reorients our systems back into the present. Um, whereas, you know, when we're highly emotional, it's very easy to either go into the past or go into the future. Like, what am I going to do next? What What are these people going to think of me? Did I ruin my child's childhood um, or going into the past? Like, man, I really wish I hadn't done X, Y, or Z that led to this situation. Neither of those things are helpful in the moment. That might be good to reflect on later, but when you're in that heightened state, it's not going to do too much for you to help you re-regulate when you need to. Mm. That reminds me of like when... Like I talk about sometimes a bee in the car. Like I cannot drive. Like I, I'm just so distracted with whatever the emotion. Like I can't think about like mm-hmm. my brain's just not allowing me to think in a human or like in what you said logical versus emotional brain. Right. So right. logical brain is like, okay, like the bee's not gonna sting me, but my emotional right. brain's overriding it, being like, Well, it, there's still a bee in the car, there's still a bee in the car. Uh-huh. So I love that, like the cold lemon or the cold water that, and all of those grounding techniques can, I feel like sometimes for me, when I worry, I will try to ruminate about that feeling. How do I get this feeling out of my brain? And then it just Mm -hmm. kind of creates this, this rumination as opposed Mm -hmm. to just grounding myself in the moment. Right. Now for worry, speaking of like worry, anxiety, um, I feel like that a lot of us moms experience that. Can you talk a little bit about um, what should we do if we feel like what's normal worry for a mom and what's when is it like abnormal? When should we seek outside help um, with those worries? Sure. Uh, so I think first what, what's really important is understanding anxiety's function in the brain um, because it's one of those things that's kind of a holdover or something that we developed early on in our evolutionary pathway to that, that served a really valuable function, right? Like having heightened anxiety allows you to like not be eaten by a lion or not, you know, to keep you safe and and out of danger. And we don't have those in theory, we do not have those stimuli anymore where we have to be worried about something jumping out and eating us. But anxiety lives in our hindbrain. It lives in that more primordial piece of our brain. And so it's not as easily rationalized now that we have our prefrontal cortex. A lot of times they are against each other. Or it feels like they are against each other. So understanding that anxiety is part of how we function as humans oftentimes can both normalize and sort of deconstruct it a little bit for people. Like, okay, this is my brain doing its best. This is my brain trying its hardest. Now, it's not always helpful. And it's sometimes you have to remind your brain, like, there's nothing that's going to eat me right now. I don't need to be having this this anxiety response. 
Um, so when we talk about sort of thresholds for, you know, seeking help or or what is normal, um, it's kind of checking in again in these moments. Um, it's normal as a first time mom or as a new mom to be checking that monitor more often than maybe it feels like. But that's just that's our anxiety saying like, well, what if something happened? What if I missed it? What if this, this, and this? The sort of line that I tend to tell my clients is when it starts disrupting your day, when it starts disrupting your ability to function, that's when maybe it's worth it to have a conversation with someone who's a support system or maybe um, consider therapy or talk to your provider. Because anxiety on the whole is normal, but the definition of a mental illness is the inability to live life on life's terms, right? So on, on any scale. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we start to have to ask ourselves, is this a function of I'm a new mom and this is scary and new, or is this really inhibiting my ability to function as a person, as a mom, as a spouse, as a friend, um, as an employee? And and that line is different for everyone. Everyone's thresholds are different. Um, but one of the big things, particularly with anxiety and depression, is intrusive thoughts. We all have them. So that's, first of all, what I always try to normalize. Everybody has intrusive thoughts. Everybody has those weird things like, what if I drove my car off the road? People that don't have anxiety or depression or don't um, experience those symptoms, it just flies by, right? Like you have it, you're like, well, that was weird, like odd, right? But if you have anxiety, if you have a depression, then it like sits and you perseverate on it. And it's this like, oh my God, what if I did? What if I did drive my car? Am I going to do that? Like, and, and it just builds and builds and it goes down the rabbit hole. That is a very clear indication that your brain is really, is, is struggling, at least in that moment. It may not be long-term struggling, but in that moment, like, you know, you shouldn't be perseverating on those thoughts. So that's where maybe the check-in or somebody else might say like, hey, I noticed that you're like really anxious or that you're really thinking about things that like aren't going to happen. Um, you know, how does that feel? And checking in with yourself, it never hurts to at least explore the option of whether it's therapy or just talking about it. Um, And sometimes that can be very scary. Like if I say the thing that I'm feeling, does that make it true? Mm -hmm. Not always. And even if it does, doesn't that mean that you deserve support? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that so much about just with anxiety that it's this false alarm and real alarm, like with a tornado. That's kind of mm-hmm. how I, my anxiety will feel in my mind sometimes of mm-hmm. my, the sound of the alarm sounds the same. It can be deafening and like, it can sometimes like those feelings can tear me apart, like the way it feels, but like just saying, okay, is this a real thing? Is this a false alarm? Is this a perceived threat? Um, or is this a real threat? And Right. Quite often, it is a perceived threat. And so letting those emotions kind of um, flow, but gosh, that has taken me years. Also, the therapy, educating myself on all of this stuff from a variety of aspects to even get to where I am. And I am still like working on it all the time. And mm-hmm. so I think this is great to kind of open up the conversation of it is okay to seek help. It is okay to not be okay. And there's so much support out there for us moms and for, for everyone. And I just want to like create this conversation of mental health and, and having this advocacy. And also Mm -hmm. you mentioned depression and, you know, we always like, I feel like 
our postpartum visits, we get the checklist of the, you know, like, are you feeling down, all that stuff. And it's just, there's not enough time, I feel like sometimes in our doctor's visits to have like a conversation about it. What, how would you, or, or what would you say about um, moms who feel like maybe I'm having some issues with postpartum depression, or I'm not sure if I'm having postpartum depression? Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so depression is, is one of those ones that is, uh, I mean, like anxiety, it's, it's insidious in how it sort of develops and, and formulates over, over time. Um, it's a lot of like what we're telling ourselves or what we think we're telling mm-hmm. ourselves, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're not a good mom, like big, big bulletin board. You're not a good mom. You're not a good wife. You're not a good this, but also it can be the small feelings of like, well, they don't want you to be around. Well, they don't want this for you. Like you don't, you don't want to be around them because you're too sad or you're too this. And it's these little things that culminate in bigger feelings of just isolation. Um, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. At that six week visit, uh, most providers will provide the Edinburgh um, postnatal depression scale. And in the moment, you may not score very high on it. Or you may not score um, in the realm of like concern, but that doesn't mean those feelings don't exist. Um, and postpartum depression and, and anxiety too. I mean, we're, we're recognizing that it actually is like the first five years um, postpartum. Mm-hmm. So it may not show up in that first six weeks. So I, I oftentimes will tell um, clients and, and new moms that just because you didn't score high in that six week appointment, that doesn't mean you're not worthy of care later on. That doesn't mean that if you start feeling these things that like, oh, you just have to suck it up and deal with it. Absolutely not. Um, depression can come much later in the postpartum. Um, so when you're when those feelings are happening, a lot of times there's this idea of like baby blues versus postpartum depression. And and baby blues, in theory, the tolerance level is a lot lower. Like, okay, you know, I'm just I'm a little weepy, I'm I'm sad because I've got this baby, I'm not sleeping very well. Um, Postpartum depression is going to be these longer term, longer lasting feelings. Um, They're probably going to be touching on feelings of self-worth, feelings of I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be a mom. My kids don't deserve me. Um, And they're very, they're very easily um, sort of pushed on us, right? Like, you know, if you're at home and you're alone with the baby and it's and the baby's crying and you're frustrated, um, even without postpartum depression or anxiety, that's just that's a lot. But then when you have those thoughts already circulating in your brain, it can feel like I'm not good enough to be his mom. I'm not good enough to be here supporting him because I can't even handle my baby. Um, and so those are the types of feelings that a lot of times as moms, as caregivers, we hold on to. It's like everyone but me. Right. But it goes back again to that theory of you can't pour from an empty cup. And if your cup, if your cup is draining, um, what else do you have to pour? So you, you need to support yourself. Um, you need to check in with those feelings. And sometimes, especially with postpartum depression, that's other people doing it for you, because when you're in it, you don't know left from right mm-hmm. um, or you're just kind of going down this track. So a lot of times it is caregivers, other parents, um, your parents being like, hey, you know, you seem you seem really down. You seem you know, and everyone's very tiptoey about, about the subject um, and, and listen to them. What they're telling you is a reflection of what they are seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but your emotions, when you're experiencing depression, and anxiety, they are not reflections of you. You may have those anxious thoughts. You may have those depressive thoughts. That is not a reflection of you as a mother, as a person, as, as anything. 
Um, those are the thoughts that are part of the symptom or part of the, the disease. Mm. I love that because thoughts are really just thoughts. Like we don't necessarily, our thoughts aren't necessarily true and they're symptoms. I, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's um, such a paradigm shift um, to think of that because I think for the longest time, my negative self-talk was just so overwhelming. And to think of it as, you know, like um, Andrew Huberman will talk about pop-up screens on a window of like just trying to click click the screen. Like there's a thought, oh, I can just X that out. And having other people hold up a mirror to you. I remember in my postpartum time, um, well, and it was different with every baby, I would say. Um, and like I had the NICU, uh, I would say more trauma type feelings mm-hmm. with NICU with the first. And then I had a little bit more OCD with the second because we didn't have the NICU, but I was always kind of on guard. And the third, right. it was um, COVID and all that. So then, then all <laughs> everyone in <laughs> the world. <laughs> so, um, but um, so I remember, I think this was this was after my first, I was so frustrated and so like just frustrated at everything. And I remember a therapist held up a mirror to me and said, you, she called, she called me a name of my mirror and I was little miss pissed. (laughs) It was me. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? Like, but she's like, so this is what this mirror is showing me. So how can you be more vulnerable? How can we be more peaceful? How can we do those things? And oh my gosh, like I still work on those things. Sometimes I yeah. still am a little mispissed, I guess. And, um, mm-hmm. but being like, oh, here, here's, the, but I, and I do need other individuals to do that. And I haven't had as much of the depression aspect as more of the anxiety and the OCD part. Um, so gosh, that self-talk, like that not feeling worthy is just, it makes me sometimes think, which is so much easier said than done, especially if you do, if you are experiencing depression of like the five to one ratio, like with John Gottman, but that's mm-hmm. marriages, but doing it for yourself of like maybe even forcing yourself or asking someone else, like, can I think of five positives to counteract this one negative about myself? Mm-hmm. And that's hard work sometimes. Like I know for me, that's hard work to counteract that. Yeah, absolutely. And and another thing that oftentimes is is wrapped up in this, whether you have postpartum anxiety, depression, or rage, or none of those symptoms is body image, right? And how we view ourselves mm-hmm. as mothers. Um, and this, you know, it's not just something that happens to birthing mothers. I mean, it can happen if you're a foster mom, if you're an adoptive mom, um, these, these still exist. But especially if you have gone through pregnancy, um, how we view our bodies and our worth based on our bodies, um, a lot of times those can come to the forefront when we're in the postpartum or we're trying to get our body back, whatever that happens to mean for you. Um, and so something that kind of aligns with what you're talking about, about saying these things and positive affirmations um, is also neutrality. Um, a lot of times we spend time just saying really crappy things about ourselves um, and it can feel inauthentic to then switch and be like, I'm wonderful. I'm great. This body's amazing. I have my, I love my curves. That's not always authentic to us. Um, so with the positive affirmations, sometimes I encourage clients, like just say something neutral about yourself, right? Like it's not bad. It's not good. Like this body housed a baby, this body nourished a baby that's now out in the world. And 
and it's because it's neither true nor or neither negative nor positive it just realigns some of those neural neural pathways in our brain to just say like this is true i don't have to like it but it is true and sometimes that's an easier or a more gentle pathway to then let's add in some positive ones too like okay your body housed this baby your body is so strong your body is so careful and so gentle with your baby um, and so sometimes that can be an easier route than just flipping a switch and going right to that positive, if that's hard for, for you. Um, and that's okay too. Absolutely. I love that you mentioned that. It's kind of like baby steps. Like we talk about like with steps of change and like with exercise, mm-hmm. like, like how I was saying earlier with like the running, I feel like maybe um, like when I first started, like I just didn't even want to go outside. So maybe even just putting my shoes by the door and be like, well, maybe tomorrow, you know, and like, and then maybe tomorrow I can go for a walk, you know, for just a little bit. And then, you know, just, but those baby steps is because we can't run a marathon overnight. We can't do that sometimes, especially if we're feeling kind of bogged down by our minds. Right. Um, Now, can you speak with us a bit about, um, I know like for me in the NICU, like I had that trauma, like I had mentioned, and I know other moms, um, you know, maybe they didn't have the birthing experience that they thought they would have and, um, having kind of grief about that. Um, can you speak a little bit about trauma and, um, like any thoughts that you'd recommend for people who are experiencing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll talk about grief first, and then sure. I'll talk about trauma, um, because grief is inherent in the parenting process. Grief is inherent in whether it's trying to conceive, fertility treatments, getting pregnant, being pregnant, going through labor and delivery, postpartum. Grief is part of the handbag that comes with it. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of excitement. This is, for most people, what they want to do is they're, they're trying for a baby, um, but Part of that and part of life, of course, is grief and and honoring and processing that grief. So whether that's, like you said, the, the birth plan not being what you wanted it to be or you were expecting it to be, pregnancy being awful when you thought it was going to be like you're going to be your best self and glowing and it's not, it's rough, um, postpartum not being what you want it to be. Uh, a lot of times it, I encourage clients like let's let's normalize grief. This is a process of grief. Motherhood parenting is inherent in it. Um, And that can be if you've had no trauma, if you've had no experience with like sadness, you had a great pregnancy, great labor and delivery, excellent postpartum. Raising children is part of is is grief laden because, again, like we talked about earlier, um, we're watching our children grow up. We're watching them become good humans. And there's sadness sometimes like there's going to be the last time you hold your baby when they're a baby. There's going to be the last diaper that you change. And ignoring or kind of smoothing over that as like, oh, that's not grief. Like, I just, I need to be happy. I have a healthy baby. I need to be grateful. You can be grateful and sad at the same time. Those two are allowed to exist together and they're mm. they're supposed to be present together. Um, and that's part of this process. Mm. So I think it's really important to normalize grief as as part of parenting. We inherently put ourselves out there. And part of the anxiety that we might feel is like, what if something happens to my child? Absolutely. That is okay to be scared about. You have just poured everything of yourself into making or having this child. And now you're putting it out into the big, big scary world. 
So grief, when as I conceptualize it and I encourage my clients to, is this idea that like when it comes, sit with it, be with it. It does suck sometimes to be a mom. It does suck sometimes when everything is going well, it, there's still grief. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. Trauma is another aspect. And of course, there's grief in that. But there are layered emotions in trauma that oftentimes we don't give or don't have time to give space to or don't think we need to give space to. And, you know, obviously trauma can happen at, at any point. And trauma is how we define it, not how anybody else defines it. So you may be going through your labor and delivery and and feel like you've been traumatized, but then you hear other people's stories. You're like, wow, mine wasn't that bad. Maybe that wasn't, you know, maybe I shouldn't be feeling this way. Trauma is what you make of it. Trauma is what you experience. Um, and so putting that out there, I think, just levels the playing field and says, okay, if that felt traumatic to you, we're going to call that trauma and we're going to treat it as trauma. And how what do you want to do and how do you want to move forward is sort of predicated on how you view that time or that situation. That makes sense. Absolutely. Wow. So when we look at trauma and of course it's so dependent on what happens and how it happens and what supports you have. Um, but trauma is one of those things that comes back later. It's, you know, you, it occurs in the moment and you do the best you can, you survive through it. And then later you're reflecting back and you're like, wow, that was really rough. Or I have a lot of feelings about that thing. Or my agency was taken away, like in, in your when you're in labor and delivery, or people made decisions that I was not okay with and I didn't have a voice. Or I'm I feel traumatized that I was treated poorly by a provider because, you know, my BMI didn't fit into the standard range and they put all these things on me and all these assumptions on me. Um, or in postpartum, like there's there's so much about how you define trauma. And that's a lot of what we work through in therapy is, is what are we calling this? Are we calling this like a rough time or are we calling this trauma? And how would you define that? I love that to have it be subjective because it really, it lives in our minds. Like our, in our, uh, and sometimes I don't know if our language has enough words to describe feelings sometimes like, mm -hmm. You know, happy has so many, there's so many variables of happy. There's so many variables of sad, anxious, trauma, all of that. And um, sometimes what helps me, and I think this is uh, from the Body Keeps Score book um, from uh, Vanderkolk, he had suggested to write or to draw out your feelings um, or an experience. And for me, that was helpful because like, I don't have words for this. Like I just feel all these emotions. So let me draw this out. Um, I mean, that, that may not work for everybody, but just, um, but honoring that, like you just, there's just something that just keeps gnawing at you. If it either be like, you know, every day, or maybe it comes up later on and that, and grief being that normal process, like we were talking about before is just, that is so powerful. And I always love to look at the seasons and look at nature as inspiration with that because there's seasons of sun, more sun and green. And then now that we're in the fall, we're seeing the leaves change and prepare for winter, but then it comes up again in the spring. And that may be, you know, that's part of our lives and part of change. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I So Rena, I, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like I can talk with you for like all day about all of this. How can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they learn more about you and um, tell us um, what I'll include everything in the show notes as well for our listeners. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm a clinician out of a practice called Counseling Works, and we're located in Naperville, Lamont, and Frankfurt. Um, and our website, I'm, I'm on the website. Um, and then always welcome to reach out via email. My, my email is rena at counselingworks.com. Super simple. Um, and, and also, you know, whether it's me, whether it's anybody else, um, there are maternal mental health specialists. So it's not something that you have to necessarily just have to find a, a generic therapist or a therapist that only does anxiety or depression. There are maternal mental health therapists out there. Um, so that's something that, you know, you can Google, or if you want to reach out to me, I can definitely get you in touch with providers in your area that specialize in that because it is a, it is a niche specialization and there is a certain, uh, amount that a therapist needs to, a certain amount of work and awareness that a therapist needs to have to work, um, with the perinatal and postpartum community. Um, and that includes caregivers, support systems, husbands, dads, anything, uh, on the spectrum of caregiving and supporting moms. Well, Rena, I really enjoyed our conversation and everything that you had to say. I mean, it's been so interesting. And I know that our audience really is going to get so much out of this. And so it's just been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic to be able to talk about these things. And the more we give a voice to it, the easier it is for people to feel like they can seek care. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rena, and I hope everyone out there has a wonderful day, and I hope um, you all take care and enjoy the weekend. Thank you.